Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. C-13 Originals. Early on in the secret history, Richard Papin, who can be viewed as a plausible surrogate for his creator, Donna Tard, finds himself in a curious kind of limbo. Having been led into the Greek class by Julian Morrow, but having not yet been led into the Greek group by Julian's other pupils. Agitated and unable to sleep, Richard picks up a copy of The Great Gatsby. Donna reads from the audiobook, and listeners, if you detect a certain pathos in her tone, you're not alone. It's one of my favorite books, and I had taken it out of the library in hopes that it would cheer me up. Of course, it only made me feel worse, since in my own humorless state, I failed to see anything except what I construed as certain tragic similarities between Gatsby and myself. Gatsby, the archetypal self-made man. Someone who found that his parents weren't to his liking, were nowhere near splendid enough, and so birthed himself. That's what the American dream is. It's the dream of self-invention. And in America, at least in the platonic ideal of America, you determine your fate. Your origins are not your destiny. Your past is not your future. And yet, everybody has origins. Everybody has a past. After all, before Jay Gatsby was Jay Gatsby, a glorious and imperial figure, he was Jimmy Gatz, a punk kid from the wrong side of the tracks. So who was Donna Tartt before she was Donna Tartt? Not an easy question to answer. I warn you, listeners, this episode is full of non-easy, dare I say, uneasy questions. There's a murkiness to Donna's backstory, to her public backstory anyway. One source of the murk, Sleepy Town. Sleepy Town is a piece Donna published in the June 1992 issue of Harper's, right before she became famous, under the heading of Memoir. It's about how Donna, or rather how the narrator, was given as a five-year-old suffering from bad tonsils daily spoonfuls of codeine cough syrup at the insistence of a great-grandfather on her mother's side. These regular doses of opium, what codeine is a derivative of, from her beloved great-grandfather, not just a Southern gentleman, a Victorian Southern gentleman, and very proper, caused her to spend much of her childhood, quote, submerged in a pretty powerfully altered state of consciousness. Years later, Donna would say that the piece had been misfiled, that it was fiction, a short story, and I can understand why an editor might have been confused, because Sleepy Town is written in the first person, and because of the obvious parallels between the narrator's life and Donna's. I can understand, too, why the confusion spread, because the newspaper and magazine journalists assigned to write about Donna treated the piece, which they naturally believed to be autobiography, as a font of reliable information. But I did a little digging. Both Donna's maternal great-grandfathers died before she was born, so Sleepy Town is fiction, and that's a fact. The other source of the murk, Donna herself, I suspect. More than suspect. Inside Dope Alert. I had an off-the-record conversation with a journalist who covered Donna early in her career. The journalist described Donna thusly. Androgynous, seductive, tried very hard to control the interview, and was very evasive about her family and Mississippi roots. Donna, who doesn't tweet, Insta, or Facebook, and who grants very few interviews, and only when she's publicizing a book, knows the value of limiting our exposure to her, of staying remote and at a star-like distance. And beyond that, she is, same as Gatsby, a self-creation, plus a self-mythologizer, which means she understands in a bone-deep way that rumor and innuendo grip the imagination far more powerfully than verified truth and that the mystery is always better than the solution. So why on earth would she set the record straight? As I already said, answering the question, who was Donna Tart before she was Donna Tart, isn't going to be easy. Thank goodness I like a challenge. 
I'm Lily Analek, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Okay, so Donna Louise Tart is born on December 23rd, 1963, in Greenwood, Mississippi. She's raised in Grenada, Mississippi, a town of approximately 11,000 in the north-central part of the state. Grenada is described to me by multiple Mississippians as not a delta town, but a hill town. Obviously, this distinction means something, only I don't have the faintest inkling of what. I'm from Boston, have lived in New York City most of my adult life. The South, as far as I'm concerned, is a foreign country, so I'm going to have to enlist translators. The first, writer and documentarian Ellen Ann Fentress from Greenwood, Mississippi, on Delta Towns versus Hill. When people think about this idea of the plantation, you think about the Delta. So in the Delta, the economies run around the big farms and the big planters. And in state politics, that was the way it worked, too. It was the Delta planters that seemed to be the ones that call the shots. And of the hills, it was more of the culture of small farmers. So basically, Grenada was a more modest-type town, even in its heyday, which by the time Donna comes along, it is decidedly no longer in. This is Robert Neal from nearby Carrollton, Mississippi. The middle class in rural areas started to struggle in the 70s with globalization. Grenada used to have a factory where they made, I think it was uh, women's hosiery. As globalization came about, most of those moved over to China or Mexico or other countries where they could have even lower wages. So many families that were White families that were middle class slipped out of the middle class into working class or even into poverty at that time. Here's Lovejoy Baudelaire, a writer and furniture maker, as well as a native of Grenada, on Grenada. My wife has talked about she was raised in the Delta and how she thinks Grenada just uh, was just a very hard-nosed place to, to have been raised. Donna's mother, Taylor, nicknamed Tay, is from an established Grenada family, the Meeks. In old editions of the local paper, the Grenada Sentinel, you'll sometimes see mention of the Meeks and their doings on the society page. For example, September 16, 1921, quote, Mr. and Mrs. T.H. Meek, accompanied by Mr. and Mrs. S.H. Horton, motored to Greenwood last Sunday. A number of the Meeks women work as librarians, though Tay works as a secretary. The mother's family in Sleepy Town is faded aristocratic. The Meeks seem to be a step below that. Shabby genteel is how I'd characterize them. Donna's father's family, the Tarts, on the other hand, are not genteel, or from Grenada, are from neighboring Tallahatchie County. Lovejoy on the Tarts. The Tarts don't have a real good reputation as far as her father's side of the family just had a general reputation as not being uh, liberal in terms of race. Now, her mother is a, a totally different story. Her mother and the Meeks were more liberal, and that fostered her artistic expression, and she didn't get that at all from her father. Donna's father, Don, yes, Don, it would seem, named his daughter after himself, is not a farmer like his father. Lovejoy on Don. Don had the Southland service station there in Grenada. It was just a service station there on Highway 51 that he either owned or he operated. Don will eventually get into Grenada politics, serving on the County Board of Supervisors. His marriage to Tay is a troubled one and ultimately ends in divorce, though he lives with Tay, Donna, and Donna's little sister Rebecca on and off throughout Donna's childhood and adolescence. Dr. King and Mr. McKissick, There's some evidence that here in Grenada that the state government has stepped in to ensure a kind of welcome so that no incidents will be created by local white townspeople along the route. Now, I presented Grenada as an undistinguished backwater. There is one way, however, in which the town makes its mark. In 1966, during school integration. Well, we've made it crystal clear that this is a non-violent march. What happens in Grenada is among the ugliest moments of the civil rights movement. Lovejoy, in high school at the time, remembers. There were just marches every day during the summer leading up to the uh, 
freedom of choice, which had been decreed by the courts for the first time. Any child could go to any school. So we had maybe 10 to 15 black kids that enrolled at Grenada High School. So the bell rang and, you know, everybody was pushing forward to, to go out the front steps. And there was just like a whole line of white men out there on the sidewalks with chains and whips. Lovejoy is supposed to pick up his younger sister at the elementary school, also being integrated that day. By the time I got her and came back and tried to cross the campus, just all hell had broken loose. I put her on my left side so she wouldn't see any of what was going on. We began to walk up the sidewalk and kind of leave the melee behind us. But then I heard a noise and I looked over in the backyard and it was two white men that I knew. They had a little, I mean, she looked like she was a first grader, a little black child. She was on the ground and one of them was whipping her with a switch and the other was was kicking her with his cowboy boots. So it was a bad, bad scene. So bad that Martin Luther King Jr., along with folk singer Joan Baez, comes to Grenada a week later and escorts black children into the schools while white mobs froth and rage. You're not expecting anything from any white bystanders, are you? No. You mean like getting run over, for instance? (laughs) Also with Baez and King that day is civil rights leader Ralph Abernathy, whose last name Donna will give to Francis, the blue-blooded Bostonian with the, quote, shrewd albino face in The Secret History. When some of the white parents realize that integration is going to happen whether they like it or not, they form all-white private schools called Segregation Academies or SEG Academies. Kirk Academy, founded in 1966, is one. Donna attends Kirk through the 12th grade. Listeners, I'm going to jump ahead to Donna's junior high and high school years because, well, because they have a tough time paying attention to anyone pre-puberty, frankly. Before I do, though, I want to tell you about the first time the name Donna Tart appears in print. It's in the Clarion Ledger, the June 17, 1968 edition, making Donna four and a half years old. Quote, Little Miss Grenada Lake Kim Souter crowned her successor, Donna Tart, Friday night as Little Miss Grenada Lake of 1968 to 1969. It is, as far as I know, the only beauty pageant, child or adult, Donna's ever entered. Now, on to teenage Donna. This is Donna's classmate, Jan Gray Walton, on what Kirk Academy is like socially. The huge thing in our life was we were very fortunate. We had excellent football teams. We were known for pet rallies. Someone would dress up like a banana and do the go bananas. And another fun, fun, huge thing was homecoming week because we had a fabulous parade and we made this gigantic flood. So Donna was always very instrumental in helping with that. She was very creative too. We took pride in dressing up for school. Back even, I think, eighth grade, stilettos were in style and we were walking around in stilettos and skirts and hose. And, you know, why did we think we had to dress like that to go to school? I don't know, but we did. Jan on what Kirk kids do for fun. We had nothing in Grenada except for Sonic for years. When we were in the eighth grade, we got a pizza hut and a movie theater, and we were so excited. And then McDonald's, somewhere right in that time frame, developed. We went out, like as teenagers, one night a week. Pizza Hut was on Highway 8, and directly behind it was the movie, and McDonald's was right beside it. And so you would drive around Pizza Hut, maybe parking lot, come back out on Highway 8, turn and go on Highway 51, drive around Sonic, and you would just drive that loop all night long just seeing who you saw. And if you're an artistically inclined kid, you're out of luck extracurricular-wise. We probably had a Spanish club maybe our high school year. Some, some years we did and some years. But as far as like drama and music and things like that at that time, we did not have. At Kirk... Donna must be as inconspicuous as a tarantula on a slice of angel food cake, to borrow a line from Raymond Chandler, that favorite of hers and Jonathan Lethem's. But no, she blends to an almost shocking degree, as I discover when I purchase on eBay a 1981 Kirk Academy yearbook, Donna's senior year yearbook. 
She has the pert Southern Miss look down cold. Skirts and dresses, blouses, long hair, makeup. And unlike, say, Brett, she's very clearly an involved student. On the cheerleading and modeling squads, editor of the school paper, takes first in district and first in state for Voice of Democracy, second in the Garden Club contest. Donna is, according to Jan, a quiet, serious girl and well-liked, though Jan can't remember a particularly close friend or boyfriend. But this, Jan remembers vividly. We knew she was going to be a writer. She would talk about that. We knew that she was going to write books. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. The idea of applying to Bennington from Kirk, it simply wouldn't be an idea. Again, Ellen Ann Fentress, who also attended a SEG Academy, Pillow Academy in Greenwood. It's out of the solar system. To go anywhere out of the state would be something. To go to someplace like a Rhodes College in Memphis or just a Vanderbilt, that would be remarkable going to Bennington with the progressive ideas and and being in Vermont, it's just like no one would have thought of that. But Donna doesn't apply to Bennington. She applies instead to the University of Mississippi, though only a non-Mississippian such as myself would ever call it that. Ole Miss, located in Oxford, under an hour's drive from Grenada, starts in September. But Donna heads to campus in late August for rush week. This is C.C. Henley, sister of Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Beth Henley, and a playwright herself. C.C. was at Ole Miss a few years before Donna. Somebody did a documentary about the Greek system, and they came to Ole Miss because after they did all the research, they figured out that practically all the schools in America, Ole Miss is like, what, the top fraternity-type school. I only had one friend that wasn't in a sorority. The mothers go up there, and they're real involved. Like, (laughs) they call them the bush mamas because they get in the bushes. And when their daughter leaves one sorority house, she jumps out of the bushes and combs her hair and makes sure (laughs) her dress is straight or whatever. A lot of the girls that didn't get in, they just went home and didn't come back to school because they were so traumatized. It's hard to imagine Bennington Donna going anywhere near this scene voluntarily, but Ole Miss Donna does. Some sororities are more desirable than others. Joanne Pritchard Morris, a writer and editor, and the widow of Willie Morris, about whom more very soon, on the hierarchy. Chi Omega, which I will confess, though I rarely do, that I was a Chi Omega. Chi O and Delta, Delta, Delta. Those are kind of the top two. Donna gets into Kappa Kappa Gamma. 
I asked Joanne who typically joins Kappa. Great girls who did not have the hometown references to be a Kayo or a Tridelt. In other words, Donna isn't connected in Mississippi. Or in any case, her connections aren't the right ones. Connect her to a second-tier sorority. So, okay, it might seem as though fraternities and sororities are the only game in town. But there's a whole other scene going on, if you know how to look. And it's brand new, and it's vibrant. Here's Jesse Yancey, an old Miss classmate of Donna's. In Mississippi, things take a while to trickle in. You know, we're very much sort of a closed society. But by the late 70s, early 80s, the spirit of the 60s had really come into Oxford. We had a lot of independent businessmen running around who were opening up art theaters and head shops. And I myself was working at the local little art theater there. It was called the Hokos. I was a projectionist. And it was just crazy, you know. It's just a jump to the left. I'll never forget the first time we showed Rocky Horror. My mouth was on the floor the whole time. I, I had no idea. Here I was, a little kid from Bruce, Mississippi, a teeny tiny little lumber town 30 miles south, and I was just, it just blew me away. I barely managed to change real. And Rocky Horror was a tame night. X-rated fare was also shown at the Hoka. Art films early, pornos late. Jesse again. And one other element of this entire literary scene, of course, is Square Books, Richard Howorth's world-famous bookstore there. Square Books, an Oxford institution since 1979, truly is a world-class bookstore, on par with City Lights in San Francisco and Powell's City of Books in Oregon. And there's one other element still, Willie Morris. Willie was born in 1934, raised in Yazoo City, He left Mississippi for college, University of Texas. Then he moved to England for a Rhodes Scholarship, then to New York for a literary career. At 32, he became the youngest ever editor of Harper's, publishing, among others, Ralph Ellison, Walker Percy, and Norman Mailer. In 1967, his memoir, North Toward Home, was released to critical and commercial acclaim. He returned to Mississippi in 1980 as writer-in-residence at Ole Miss, this is Lisa Howarth, co-founder of Square Books, on Willie. We were worried maybe he'd just come back here to retire and he wouldn't really get involved in a, a dynamic way. But that didn't prove to be true. Willie, he brought in all his friends. Good Lord. He brought in Styron, Plimpton, Peter Matheson, all his mid-century writers, exalted writers. It was so wonderful to have them and sort of paralyzingly exciting to those of us who cared about books and stuff. Donna couldn't have timed her entrance into Oxford better if she tried. Again, Lisa Howarth. It was the late 70s when things started, Hoka and the bookstore. And by the 80s, it was just, you know, we laughingly would say, this is like Paris in the 20s, you know, which was ridiculous, but... (laughs) so much fun. It was really crazy. So Donna's made it through rush week. Now for the first week of school. During it, she encounters a young man named Ben Herring. Ben is the key to this episode, the key to her year at Ole Miss, and maybe the key to the Buildings Roman portion of her story in general. This is episode seven, a dead middle episode in the season, yet it's the last episode I wrote. I didn't feel I could start it until I was able, or rather, until I found someone who was able, to answer two questions. One, why did Donna transfer from Ole Miss to Bennington? Two, how did Donna go from this, this being the photo of Donna in her senior year Kirk Academy yearbook, in which she looks like a late 70s, early 80s suburban Scarlett O'Hara, to that, that being a photo of Donna taking her first year at Bennington? in which she looks like a member of the Hypocrites Club, all male and only in existence from 1921 to 1925 at Oxford University. You can see the photos on my website. Now, I've been at this Bennington project for a long time, years, and I've interviewed everybody from Grenada, from Kirk, from Ole Miss, who might have anything remotely germane to say and was willing to say it to me in my tape recorder. 
Yet not one of these people, until Ben, could answer to my satisfaction either question. And it wasn't until I interviewed Dorothy Abbott, whose name I'd gleaned from a letter Donna wrote to Jonathan over non-resident term, NRT, that I heard so much as a whisper about him. Dorothy is Dr. Abbott, Donna's, quote, friend, unquote, at Ole Miss, the one putting together the anthology of Mississippi writers. Here's Dorothy, then part of the university's Center for the Study of Southern Culture. The first thing that pops out is that I'm not a doctor. I have a couple masters, but no PhD. And uh, I wouldn't consider us friends. She referred to me as a friend. But anyway, Donna came to my office with another student named Ben Herring. And I am really blank on how I met Ben, except I think he was a journalism student. Tall, blonde, articulate, gregarious. That would be the way I'd describe him. I remember her being quiet and kind of sitting there while Ben did most of the talking. I just don't remember a lot about her. Sounded like a lead to me. Ben Herring, though, is a fairly common name, especially in the South. I located three possible suspects and started writing them. Two weren't Ben Herring, at least weren't my Ben Herring. The third didn't respond. And then all of a sudden, months later, he did. A message appeared in my inbox via LinkedIn. Lily, this is almost like a dream come true. Yes, I'm still that nice guy, and I can tell you everything about Donna and her eventual path to Bennington. Please call or text me immediately at... He wrote out his number. Knowing Donna was one of the most pivotal events in my life. I hope you have not finished yet because I can share a horde of granular detail on how this extraordinary writer came to be. Again, my cell is... And again, he wrote out his number. I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely yours, Ben. I dialed so quickly I kept skipping numbers. It took me three tries to get the combination right. Ben picked up on the first ring. We spoke for hours. Ben on meeting Donna. Okay, so first week of college at Ole Miss, September of 1981. I was day manager of the Daily Mississippian, and uh, I put an ad in the paper for incoming freshmen. If you're interested in working for the paper, come by Farley Hall at 7 p.m. on Thursday. And so, you know, maybe a dozen students came in, but the most striking person just visually at first was Donna because she's only like, uh, I think she was only like four foot 11. And she has very striking looks, green eyes. And, you know, she had this sort of, um, you know, I don't know, there's probably a German word I can't think of, but she really just packed a punch. I looked over her clippings real quick and I asked her, had she ever by any chance published any fiction? And she told me that, in fact, she had. And she later gave me the piece. If memory serves, it's called The Death of Dr. Faustus. It was a literary magazine published by an American college or university. And the name of the journal is Harbinger. And I read this story. I think she may have had to stay on me for a week or two to read this thing. But finally, I read the thing. They say there are no child prodigies in literature. You know, there, there's prodigies in music and math and other things, but none in literature. Well, I'm telling you. Donna Tart is and was a child prodigy in literature because as soon as I had read Donna's story, I said, you know, meet me in the lobby. I'm coming to your dorm right now. And she says that she will never forget this moment. It's always like glowing in her memory. I said, look, I've read your story finally, and you, you're a genius. A bit on who Ben Herring is in 1981. He's the son of an Ole Miss professor and is older than a typical undergraduate, 25. As a matter of fact, he isn't an undergraduate. He'd started his college career at Ole Miss, but had taken a break to work in D.C. for a few years. In the summer of 1980, he re-enrolled, earning his degree in English the following spring. 
journalism has become his focus. He is considering pursuing a second degree in it, if not his ultimate ambition. Novelist is his ultimate ambition. Willie Morris, I always out for fresh talent, has spotted Ben's pieces in the Daily Mississippian. And by the time Donna comes along, Ben is part of Willie's small class of journalism students, as well as Willie's not-so-small cadre of drinking companions. As soon as the bars closed down, Willie would hold an impromptu salon at his house. He would say, why don't we call Colonel William Styron? And then he said, why don't we call the great James Dickey tonight? And it's after midnight, mind you. And goddamn, is Willie drunk again and gotten you up to talking to people here after midnight? And despite the fact that Willie was calling them so late, it was all part of the salon. And I thought of the amazing power of Willie that just could reach out to just about any famous writer anywhere. And after midnight, and, you know, they would accept his call. Ben tells Donna he'd like to show her work to Willie. She's all in. The tricky part, getting Willie to sit down and read. Willie did so much for so many people. He had impossible demands placed upon him by the university, by Center for Study of Southern Culture, by his students. None of them meaning to place impossible demands on him. I don't mean in a malicious way. I mean simply the demands upon his time as a human being were stretched so thin. Willie used to keep his phone in the refrigerator so he couldn't hear it ring. It was brutal, brutal, the schedule that he was under. Ben is interested in more than Donna as a writer. His impressions of her as a person. She dressed strictly very much, very sharp, very appropriately for an old Miss freshman as a sorority girl. And she had just pledged. She very much wanted to fit into that world. She had no desire to be a bohemian to Ole Miss because basically everybody starts at Ole Miss wanting to fit into the social circle because you're dead if you don't have it. But also she loved punk rock and she was into the clash. She had overdosed on rock criticism. I mean, not, not in a gaudy way, but in a great way. I mean, she just knew shit about music that was just insane for a 17-year-old. And my God, was she well-read. She has a self-dramatizing streak. Sometimes it seems like she would invoke Sylvia Plath for sympathy, and other times she would invoke her as, uh, as a warning or something like that. Like, hey, you know, I, I, I'm like in a dark place. In The Secret History, Donna will take a funny little shot at her younger self. Richard Papin, freshly arrived at Hamden, is reluctant to get involved with any of the new girls he's meeting because the girl he got involved with at his last school proved such a needy drip. Donna reads, I met her my first year of college and was initially attracted to her because she seemed an intelligent, brooding, malcontent like myself. But after about a month, during which time she'd firmly glued herself to me, I began to realize, with some little horror, that she was nothing more than a lowbrow, pop-psychology version of Sylvia Plath. It lasted forever, like some weepy and endless made-for-TV movie. All the clinging, all the complaints, all the parking lot confessions of inadequacy and um, poor self-image, all those banal sorrows. Ben asks Donna to be his date to the Ole Miss two-lane football game. On the way back, they stop off in Grenada. That's when I first met her mother and her father. In Donna's words, her father was the ultimate Philistine of all. You know, barbaric, redneck Mississippian. She wanted nothing to do ever with her father. And her mother is everything that Donna is. Tay, I, I just kind of like fell in love with this woman too. She's so much fun in this dry wit. She's a character. Donna and Ben seem on the verge of a full-fledged romance. I assigned her to write a review of a play that we saw in a dinner theater in Memphis. And both being poor, we were both very hungry on riding there, driving up to Memphis in my beat-up car, my Dodge Dart without air conditioning. And when we got there, it was a wonderful feast. And uh, 
so um, we got to know each other there. We were lovers of a sort, and um, we actually spent the night in a <laughs> probably a pretty cheapest hotel room I could afford in Memphis after the dinner theater. You know, uh, I don't want to drive back home to Mississippi, and, and of, of course, myself, I was wanting to become intimate with her. Seem on the verge of a full-fledged romance, yet they can't quite get out of their own way or each other's. When Donna hit Ole Miss, she was a shy student who didn't date much. I don't think that she had sex with anybody, and we certainly did not go all the way. I, I, I count only four times that we you know, got a little passionate. We both had the same personality and uh, both had tempers. Hers was expressed more, and she was huge in making me jealous. And there was a certain guy, and she granted me later that, indeed, it was so easy for her to, as she said, tantalize me with this guy's name. It was an utterly tempestuous affair. Meanwhile, Indian summer has turned into fall, has turned into deep fall, and Willie Morris still hasn't read Donna's piece. Ben may have his doubts about Donna as a romantic partner, but he doesn't about her as a literary talent. And he's busily promoting her to other influential Ole Miss people, including Dorothy Abbott. Ben talks up Donna to Dorothy. Has Dorothy eager to meet Donna? Donna, though, doesn't stop by Dorothy's office. Week after week would pass and she wouldn't go in there. And I said to Donna, I said, look, you're a goddamn genius. Why aren't you going in there? You know, I set this up for you, blah, 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 blah. And she got really upset, really, really upset. And, you know, uh, we were both high-strung people. It definitely was like a, a star is born type of thing. Here's someone who is like way, way beyond you in terms of talent. And you know that, but God damn it, you're still going to like push them on uh, and, and forwards. Even as you're fading in the distance, you're going to, you know, continue. Ben gets on the phone to Donna's mother, Tay. Tay said, Ben, 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 you know, please do not call her genius. That's not helpful. It's unhealthy what you're doing. You know, that word has a certain toxicity. Donna, maybe she was freaking out at that point because all of this talent held in by this tiny little skull you know, in the emotions that, that must have been just absolutely running wild in all directions. It's an awful lot to shoulder, awful lot to bear. This story about Ben calling Tay to rant about Donna seems to me so revealing. From it, you get a sense of how shy Donna is at 17, 18, also how anxiety-filled, and of the burden of her intelligence and talent, and how close they are at this age to crushing her get a sense, too, of the deep level of understanding and sympathy that exists between her and her mother. Donna, in interviews, speaks fondly of Tay, acknowledges that they're tight. It sounds like more than that, though. It sounds like Tay was her lifeline in those early years, what enabled her to survive Kirk Academy, an experience that she was outwardly unfazed by, but which was inwardly excruciating. High school, as portrayed to me, was pretty much a nightmare. It was, you know, the artist trying to break loose and being stuck in Grenada, Mississippi. And she had told me that from like a very young age, she would come home from school and her mother would shove paper and pencils under her door and she would just keep writing and writing and writing. Tay is Donna's protector. And my guess is that Tacey's Ben taking over that role. Of course, Donna does eventually go to Dorothy's office, with Ben accompanying her. Willie, though, continues to be the main focus. Donna and Ben are still sweating out his verdict. And I was doing my best. It just took, you know, he was a busy man. And, uh, I mean, I had him in class once a week. So, I, I mean, her work was so important that I could not afford to go to Willie to the point that he would snap back and she'd never get her shit read, right? I had to be uh, diplomatic. But at a certain point, diplomacy goes out the window. So, Donna, as you can imagine, she was uh, pretty uh, anticipatory. She was waiting and waiting. We waited for from the middle of September to the middle of November, two months. 
of her freaking out. And she had given me a push, like, has he read it? Or can you ask him again? And, and, and I felt bad about it, that Willie had not yet read it. And that's why, you know, that November day, I'm like, okay, my God, uh, you know, I'm just going to barge in on Willie at his home. And, you know, basically just trying to push him along to read the darn thing. So I pulled in the driveway there and I started walking up the stairs. And just as I'm doing it, he's coming out. He's in a rush. He's got a cigarette in his hand. He just says, are you sure she wrote that story? Just like that, he blurted it out. He said, if that's the case, she's a goddamn genius. And he said, bring her to the Holiday Inn tonight. And so Ben does. The Holiday Inn bar doesn't sound like a happening spot. But in Oxford at that time, it very much is. The night is a rainy one. The sun of Willie's approbation, though, is shining down on Donna. And it continues to shine day after day that first semester. And she flowers under it. Once I handed her over to Willie, as it were, at the Holly Inn Bar, then Donna and I became part of the salon. Donna and I, without ever Willie necessarily even saying so, had carte blanche to walk in that house anytime. The following semester, Southern Gonzo novelist and short story writer Barry Hanna comes to Ole Miss. Donna knocks him out too. As a freshman, she's the star of his graduate-level creative writing class. Jesse Yancey, also in that class, remembers the first assignment. Barry said, send me a three-page story. And I read them all, of course, and I thought, well, mine was, uh, you know, way over the top and everything. But hers was a jewel. It was about this man who was an orchid fancier. He had some people at his house, some fellow orchid people there. And his wife, she was, you know, standing at the top of the stairs and she heard them in the greenhouse talking. And there was a wonderful line. She said uh, she heard the Latin names of the orchids as they rolled out their tongue and they sounded like incantations. You know, magic. I thought that was just the most splendid line. And there was hints that the guy was actually a homosexual. He was keeping the woman just as a beard. And she was another beautiful orchid in his greenhouse. Donna sat behind me in the class. I thought she was a prep girl. I thought she was a cow or a tribal, you know, one of, the, one of the fine sororities on campus. I turned around and said, is this your story? And she said, yes. I mean, she's very soft voice. And she, she looked, she, she seemed rather timid. I said, of course, I'm over the top. And I said, man, this is great. Blah, 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 blah. And she was like, okay, you know, thanks. Like, back off. Barry's already been nominated for a National Book Award. And his position in American letters is a lofty one. Unlike Willie, he isn't a commercial writer, is a writer's writer. Again, Lisa Howarth of Square Books. Willie was incredibly popular, especially in Mississippi, and uh, had a name and a lot of recognition. Barry didn't have that. Barry was a much darker figure in every way. His unusual use of syntax and words and language and his penchant for the weirdness that exists in everybody and in the world, I don't know, it was extraordinary. And I always felt like of all the writers we've had around Oxford, I thought Barry was the only one as far as reputation and accomplishment, literary accomplishment, was the only one who really could come close to William Faulkner. Willie is Donna's great mentor, but Barry, Barry is an influence. His most famous short story, Testimony of Pilate, ends with this line. Quote, that is why I told this story and will never tell another. The prologue of The Secret History ends with this line. I suppose at one time in my life, I might have had any number of stories. But now, there is no other. This is the only story I will ever be able to tell. So Donna is living a life she could have only dreamed of back in Grenada. It's perfect in every sense except one, her courtship with Ben, which is going from Rocky to Kaput. He's taken up with a grad student. And I met her about midway through 
the same year that I, I knew Donna and just sort of fell in with her. And it, it, you know, it came to a point where Donna and I had nothing but tempuosity. But here's the thing. It morphed into something much healthier. We became just pure friends, uh, stripped of any sexuality uh, or desires or, or hugging or even kissing. Ben redefines the terms of their relationship, and they both seem the happier for it. I don't think she had any strong desire towards me. I mean, if it hadn't been, I think that she would have reached for my hand or tried to move me into situations, you know, where we could become intimate, but but that never happened. I think that it was a very good match and a very good friendship between us. She brought a wonderful sort of romance. Is that our, our romance with a big R or a little R? I forget, but I mean, just in a broad, sweeping context, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, exquisite period of my life, and I'm like grateful for every second of it. So why does Donna let this period end? Why does she decide to leave Ole Miss, go to Bennington? I want to pause for a second so that that question really has a chance to sink in. Look, I'm sure there are lovely people in Grenada and at Kirk Academy, but Donna had to have felt like an alien. She'd been forcing herself to conform to the values and ideals of that world for her entire life. Competing in child beauty contests and wearing stiletto pumps to morning assembly and aiding in the construction of homecoming floats. And then, all of a sudden, two major American writers are treating her not just like a prospect, but like a peer. And she's engaged in a passionate relationship, something between a friendship and a love affair, with an older guy who is intelligent and sensitive and who has already lived and worked in the wider world and whose devotion to her talent borders on the religious. I imagine the sense of belonging and acceptance must have been, for her, almost unbearably intense. Now, listen to this 1992 exchange between Donna and talk show host Charlie Rose. Why'd you transfer to Benning? Actually, on the advice of my friend Willie Morris, um, when I was a freshman at Ole Miss, um, I was... um, I was in a graduate-level writing class. I was taught by Barry Hanna. I had gotten in, and they, they said um, that it— pro- and they were quite right, I mean, that I should, I should um, go someplace else and see what other people were doing. I mean, um, you know, schools in the Northeast then were very sort of cutting-edge. So Donna's answer is that Willie Morris told her to, basically, which I believe because people who ought to know— that is, Joanne Morris and Ben Herring, have told me he told her to. For what reason, though, does he tell her to? Why is he so convinced that Bennington is the right school for her? I don't get it. First of all, early 80s Ole Miss has Bennington beat in terms of writer-teachers. Barry Hanna is one of the finest pro stylists in America at this time. What's more, there are other promising writing students on the scene. John Grisham, who'd earned his law degree at Ole Miss the previous spring, and grit-litter Larry Brown, who's working at the local firehouse, are both protégés of Willie's. And the cutting-edge thing makes zero sense to me. What does cutting-edge even mean in this context? Minimalism? Donna's taste and sensibility are, as discussed back in episode 5, the opposite of minimalist. That can't be the draw. Nor can it be the hope of better connections, since who, during this period, is better connected than Willie? Willie's widow, Joanne Morris. He knew that he wouldn't have done what he did had he stayed in Mississippi, and he believed that Donna wouldn't have either. Which tracks, sort of. Willie probably wouldn't have written his most famous book, Northward Home, if he'd stuck around the South. But it doesn't explain why Bennington in particular. Bennington is hardly the no-brainer choice. It's not Harvard or Yale, after all. Okay, so Ben said something to me, and I want you to cock an ear. Donna had something of a sexual ambivalence about her. She had told me uh, of, of some uh, homosexual experience that she had had. It, it was like something that she just had to get off her shoulders. I want to assure you, listeners, I'm not treating Ben's disclosure here as revelation. Donna never went into specifics with Ben about the, quote, homosexual experience 
other than to say it happened at a slumber party. No doubt it was nothing. Garden variety youthful experimentation. I'm only mentioning it, or rather allowing Ben to mention it, because I think it could be, and I'm stressing those two words, could be, in an indirect and once-removed kind of way, the reason Willie recommends Bennington. Ben. Willie, there was probably, I mean, I, I cannot say that I ever saw a person even being in his house that uh, that I knew they were gay or, or, or not gay. But, I mean, Willie was cool before it was cool. So he surely, clearly, you know, sniffed that out in Donna. I mean, you can see it in, in her looks. Her looks are androgynous. I'm interrupting Ben for a second. It's androgyny, not homosexuality, that's essential to Donna, in my opinion. You could argue that androgyny is essential to her at a personal level. The, quote, my boy and, quote, my lad aspect of her relationship with Paul McGloin. But where androgyny is really, truly essential to her, where it's her sine qua non, is at an artistic level, as Brett notes. She liked men. I mean, just like, and, and her two biggest books were narrated by men. It's true. Both The Secret History and her most recent novel, The Goldfinch, are written in the first person, and the narrator is a young male. Donna seems to, in some way, identify with this point of view. Back to Ben. Bennington is crazy, as you know, and I, Willie simply knew that a New England type of school, this is where your free spirit can let loose, your literary talents, real artists. He's, because he knows so much, and to me, it's very selfless, because Willie could have had her for one of his students, right? But it speaks to his great unselfishness that he realized in a heartbeat that there was a better place for her. The sexual freedom, the artistic freedom, the personal freedom, all of that will be available to Donna at Bennington. An additional benefit. At Bennington, Donna won't be hampered by her origins or the past. I want to go back for a second to her sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma. That someone like Donna felt compelled to rush is a testament, not just to the power of the Greek system, another name for the class system, at Ole Miss, but also to the cultural esteem placed on traditional gender roles there. What's more, a mid-level sorority is as high as Donna can hope to rise. In other words, severe limitations are placed on her in Mississippi. Okay, so the way I see the South as a foreign country is surely the way most of the kids at Bennington, the majority of whom are from the East or West Coast, will see it. And how great to be a foreigner. As a foreigner, Donna can retain her privacy, her mystery as well. Her new classmates won't be able to decode her signs, are clueless as to what it means to be from the hills rather than the Delta, to attend a SEG academy, to have a father in charge of Beat One on the Grenada County Board of Supervisors. These biographical details, which might be viewed as embarrassing or tacky by a Cayo or a Tridelt, will be viewed as different or exotic by a Bennington student. So, in a sense, what Bennington gives Donna is a blank page for her backstory. She can write on it whatever the hell she pleases. And by the way, this, I suspect, is why she got mad at Jonathan for his zealot piece with its financial aid reveal, because it turned her blank page into a palimpsest. All right, listeners, this will likely come as no shock to you, but the guy Donna is so hung up on in those NRT letters to Jonathan, the one she calls Lord Jim, is almost certainly Ben Herring. Donna is good at covering her tracks, referring to him by a code name, the name of the Joseph Conrad character, a tall, strapping, blonde and mysterious British sailor, and giving him almost no identifying marks. But she did leave behind a few traces. For example, in both her January 11th and February 7th letters, she complains bitterly about never hearing from him. Here's Ben, AKA Lord Jim. Donna and I, we haven't been in touch in so long and that we've been out of touch is all my fault because I never returned letters upon letters upon postcards. Ben had exerted so much effort on Donna's behalf. So why not exert the little bit more required to keep in contact? When she left for Bennington, despite the very sweet letters that she wrote me, I mean, I was like already feeling like the Star is Born thing was kicking in because I, I mean, I knew that she was a 
far greater writer than I would ever be. You know, I had a somewhat satisfying career in journalism, so no regrets. But I think I felt sort of too great an insecurity over that fact. I think that um, part of my not writing was like sort of feeling myself slipping behind or whatever. In Donna's final NRT letter to Jonathan, she devotes to Laura Jim a single energetic line. Quote, I hate Jim. I have an idea of what got her so jacked up. In the winter of 82-83, when she and Paul are living in D.C., Ben is there too, working as a legislative correspondent. I found out that Donna was in D.C., and it just seemed bizarre how this could happen because, you know, I thought she was at Bennington, and what's the deal? And she said she was staying with an aunt of hers. Quote, Anne was the article she used rather than my. I never went to said Anne's house. But she came out with me, and we went dancing and drinking one night with, with the members of the Mississippi delegation that, that, that worked on Capitol Hill. Ben might not see the night of dancing and drinking as a date, but Donna, I'm betting, does. Otherwise, why not be straight up with Ben about her living situation? And I'll never forget this one scene. We had a Rolling Stones song that we both loved, Donna and I, and it was, she's my little rock and roll. So, you know, the unmistakable rip chord of a song by the Rolling Stones, she goes, Ben, that's our song. Let's dance. And so we got up and and had a wonderful time. And uh, this seems all the more bizarre nearly 40 years later, looking back and understanding that at the time she's there living in Washington, uh, with her boyfriend. It's just, uh, it's a hoot. I mean, it, it, it's hilarious. Not so hilarious to Donna at the time, I suspect. So what's going on here? Well, this is purely speculative on my part, but I'm guessing that the relationship with Ben is bewildering to Donna, not to mention frustrating. He clearly cares for her and yet insists on keeping her at arm's length. When he decided over Christmas the year before that they were better off as friends than lovers, She'd raised no objections. He'd therefore assume that she was fine with their change in status. After all, as he said, she never made a move on him. But then she wouldn't. At least my impression of her is that she wouldn't. It's not that she's weak or passive, but she does have real delicacy of feeling, or so it seems to me. So she's stuck trying to arrange romantic situations. That's our song. Then waiting for Ben to notice that she's the one. Waiting and waiting. The two will play out a final scene together, a painful one, but not until the summer of 84, which I can't tell you about now because that would be getting ahead of our story. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College, Donna, Brett, and Jonathan return to campus after their long and eventful winter breaks. Brett. I remember once he kind of took me aside and we were talking about fiction and I was talking about how I loved uh, Nabokov, how I loved Anne Beattie. So he got a little impatient and he said, look, everything has been tried already. That domestic comedy that you like, that's been done already. And, you know, stream of consciousness, that's been done already. James Joyce has done that already, right? The, the pension phantasmagoria that's been tried and a lot of people didn't like reading it but there is one thing that hasn't been done yet and that's like just sensationalism like giving the reader sensations that they don't know they want and they can't have access to and that's the kind of thing that i'm going to try to do this has been a presentation and production of c13 originals a Cadence 13 studio. Once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, artwork and design by Kurt Courtney, marketing by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. 
Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. It's Sophia Franklin, and if you don't already know, listen up. My mini-series is live now, each and every Monday, and the only person missing is you. We're dating, we're dumping, we're learning, and we're tapping into all the feels that originally brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.